But today we're going to talk about uh, one of our core beliefs, and that is that we are redeemed by Christ Jesus. We are redeemed by Christ Jesus. And um, this is a pretty key thing, uh, obviously, um, but this is a premise that's really important that we understand this and work from this perspective in this tribe because it really shapes how we live it shapes how we treat one another. It shapes, uh, you know, the, the, really the way that we view reality in a large way. So this is a huge part of our story. Um, so I want to just jump right in because I've got a few things I want to build uh, today. Um, so let's begin in the scriptures here. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And you need to be hearing, we are sons and daughters. We are, we are all included in this. This is like mankind doesn't mean men only. It means all of those made in God's image. It starts out by saying, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, what's interesting about that is the phrasing in the fullness of time, which means there was a point in history where God decided this is the best possible time for my son to come, fulfill everything that was said about him. But also, this is a context where what I'm saying about reality will be perfectly clear as to what I actually mean by this when I sent my son to save you. So what was the context? Because this was during a time, you know, how many of you guys know that Jesus is not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed <laughs> Italian dude, right, with really beautiful hands? That, that's not what he actually looked like. He was a burly Middle Eastern man with dark hair and brown eyes who was probably pretty buff with rough hands because he was a carpenter and he didn't look, he wasn't Irish Jesus. But the reason why we see him that way is because the people that love Jesus just assumed that Jesus looked just like them because their culture that they were in where that, where that art came from, all of those people looked fairly like that, or that was a really good-looking version of what people looked like from there. They were seeing Jesus through their own culture. And that is something that we all do. You guys are familiar with that phrase, or I mean with that, uh, with that little joke, right? There's two young fish, and they're swimming along in the ocean, and an older fish swims by him, and he goes, how's the water today, boys? And the one young fish looks at the other fish and goes, what's water? Because culture is like water. It's, the, it's what we swim in, but we don't notice it. We don't realize what, uh, what's going on. We're just used to it. You don't, you don't think about it, right? I mean, I, if I'm near you and I put my hand up like this, what are you going to do? You're going to high-five me. How do you know that? Because that's cultural. You, you, you just know it. You know, you know what to expect. You don't think about that. You just know that's what it is. Well, we live in a culture right now that is a democratic republic, right? Come on, we got freedom of speech. We got freedom of religion. We've got free elections. We have certain things that we expect and that we see things through. We live in Oregon, which is a pretty ruggedly independent group of 3.8 million people that came out here because they're like, I want to do me how I like to do me. And people see culture through that lens. And when we look back and read the Bible, we have to make sure that we're not reading into the scriptures 
our culture onto the scriptures. We need to understand what was actually going on and see it as it is, not as we are. Does that make sense? So I want to do that today because we just read that it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son to show us what reality looks like. So first of all, I want to say that the Bible, the scriptures we're looking at right now from Genesis to Revelation, that is the history of God with man. That is mankind with God. That is the story of mankind. And you know what? It's our story. So when you and I are reading the word, we, we don't look at that and go, oh, yeah, it was like those people over there. No, no, no. What God's saying is like, this is your story, starting with Adam, which is our beginning. And then as we launch then into eternity in Revelation and live forever, everything from Genesis to Revelation, that's our story. That's our picture at reality. Now, we need to make sure we don't impose our culture onto that, as I just said, and see it as it is, but don't see it as something else. See it as, this is my story. Are you guys with me? This is my past, this is my present, and this is my future. So when we read it, we see that. Now, technology changes, knowledge increases, but the plot is always the same. So come with me as we look at our story together, okay? So fullness of time. Jesus is coming at this time, and he's talking to a whole bunch of people about things that they readily understand, okay? He's giving context in a way that the people readily understand. If I say to you Taco Bell right now, you readily understand. Really fast, consistent, mediocre food with 20-minute side effects for most Americans. Amen? And can I get an amen? Okay. I actually like Taco Bell. I'm just saying there's a cost that goes with it. Anyway. So when Jesus, <laughs> if you said Taco Bell back, in, back then, though, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Are you with me? So when Jesus was speaking, he was saying things that were relevant to where they are. He was showing them and fulfilling something that people look at and go, I know exactly what you're talking about. So Jesus is coming in the fullness of time. So what was the society that Jesus came into? Well, the society that Jesus came into is a patriarchal society. Now, when you use the word patriarchy, Right? You can kind of feel a little collective shudder, like, oh, right? Because at this point, quite honestly, patriarchy has become a bad word, right? Patriarchy has been like, stop the, fight the patriarchy. It's become a bad word because of the failings and the abuses carried out by sinful men. Much in the same way that the word father is a bad word for people who had horrible fathers. Can we receive that? Now, what's very cool about this, this is just an aside, but I do want to say this, is that God is not seeking to restore a patriarchal society on the earth, okay? He actually worked within a patriarchal society, which I'm going to share some more about, to show us what reality looks like in, response, in regards to what is going on, who is our father in heaven, who is our enemy, and how does God intend to create an eternal life of joy and pleasure and peace and righteousness with him forever. Okay, are you with me? But within that, he actually critiqued the patriarchal society that people were in. Oftentimes, he would choose the youngest son to do a certain thing. King David was the youngest son, not the oldest son, which never happens in a patriarchal society. So even within a patriarchal society, God was still working to renew that, that, that social structure, that government, and he still does that today. I think that's important to say. I didn't say it first service, and I wished I would have, 
because I'm not saying, man, God's perfect picture for how he wants government to work is to go back to a patriarchy. He's not saying that. He's saying within this societal structure, I want to show you what I was doing and how this structure worked and what, it was, what its benefit was. But he was also able and willing to critique it in its abuses. Does that make sense? Okay. So what is a patriarchal society? Well, a patriarchal uh, or a patriarchy is a historical governmental structure that existed to provide identity, provision, justice, and safety for families in agrarian and tribal society. So during this time, you got to remember, right? Adam and Eve are created in God's image. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it, take dominion, care for this. What did everything start out as? A family. As those families grew, then they became tribes. And within those families and tribes, you had a patriarch whose whose responsibility was to provide identity, safety, provision, and justice. Are you guys with me? So the beginning governing build or the beginning of government is the family. And that's what a patriarchal governmental structure came from and continued for, 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 for very, very long time. And Jesus was entering into at a time while that was still the core understanding of what, how, society, how societal government worked. However, it came with a heavy responsibility for the patriarch. It had corresponding authority to be exercised for the benefit of the entire family. The position was passed from father to firstborn son, and the son was expected to learn from the father and continue in his good work so as to carry on the family legacy and survival of the family. The family was called Bet-Ab. This was your household. This was the Bet-Ab was the household. It was your kinship circle. It was what you saw up here. This was the Bet-Ab of the, of the uh, Oaks Mills family. Did you see that Bet-Ab? And then there's people that aren't here that are still a part of that. And so these patriarchs, their job was to make sure that there was provision, identity, safety, and justice that was taken care of for the whole family. In a patriarchal society, each family has a husband, okay, who would carry on the responsibilities of caring for his family. Now, should the man die, the husband die, then the responsibility would pass to his firstborn son. However, if there weren't any sons yet born to his wife, then his brother would marry her and become the kinsman redeemer. It was a kinsman that would redeem to take care of and now provide for the identity, safety, provision, and justice to be taken care of for this widow. Now, Uh, oh, I want to further explain that when this happened, then that's, then that, now for us, that sounds a little weird, right? I mean, you're like thinking all of the women in here are thinking of their brother-in-law right now, like, oh, absolutely not. Because, you know, it's like, that sounds terrible. Um, but the point here is that they didn't have a democratic republic 
with, a, with the federal system and states that were working together and paying taxes and making sure that we had funds so that if you come into a place of needing extra help, you could sign up for the Oregon Health Plan and get some food stamps for a little while and some assistance and a grant to go to school so you could get some training so you could get started. That was not how this worked. There was none of that stuff. What you had was the Bet Ab. You had a household. You had a group, your family group that was going to take care of you, and you married into that group and were taken care of by that patriarch. But what happens if the patriarch in your family dies? You are left destitute. Now, if you have a son, then your son is the firstborn, and he eventually ends up getting to take care of things. As you age, he takes care of you. You guys are familiar with the commandment, honor your mother and father. You remember at one point, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees because he says, you guys make the law of no effect through your traditions. You say to the people, what I, what I would do for my mother or father, I give as a gift unto God. And by this, you make the law of God of no effect. He was saying, you're not taking care of your mother and father in their old age. That's what honoring your mother and father, that's a big part of it was. And you're, you're, you're actually violating the law of God. Does that make sense? That son was going to take care of the family throughout, and he became the, the new patriarch. What happens if there was no son? Then a brother would take his widow into his house, marry her, and provide her with a son. The first son was actually named after your brother to carry on his family line and his name. And so the brother would take her into his home, and then every son and daughter after that first son would be named after him. Does that make sense? So this was, this was how family welfare worked, and in the best, I mean that in the best sense of the word, this was how you took care of your family to carry on the promises and lineage and heritage of God, and to care for your widows and your orphans, etc. So this was, this was how this worked in a patriarchal society. Now, should the son, I'm sorry, should the brother not be willing to marry his brother's widow, then it would fall to a cousin, the next person. It would fall to the next person in the relational line so that she could be taken care of. And that person who took care of her, who took her into his home, was called your kin, your kinsman, the kinsman redeemer. So you would redeem someone out of the poverty of what life had done by bringing them into your home, bringing them under your, under your care, and providing for them, loving them, giving them security, identity, provision, and safety. I mean, and justice. Does that make sense? So this was how this society worked. And what would happen is, without someone coming to redeem you, you were left essentially destitute. You, had, you didn't have any options. You needed to be part of a tribe and part of a family because that's how the whole society was created. So it's in this context that Jesus came in the fullness of time to show how our father, the patriarch, is going to send his son as the kinsman redeemer, the firstborn son, to come and redeem all of those who are lost. So I want to I take and I want to dive into this, and I want to share with you four different stories. Jason actually shared one of them last week, so I'll just recap it real quick. But of how we see the patriarch the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer, come and bring those lost people back into the bet uh, back into the household, back into the kinship circle. Are you guys with me? So the first story is the prodigal son. We see this picture 
of a prodigal son who is by his own will, obviously we know the story, it's terrible, basically says to his father, you're worth more to me dead than alive. I don't want to wait around until you're dead to get my inheritance. I'll take it now. Heads off, spends it all on, on uh, harlotry and revelry, as the King James Version says. And after he spent everything, then he's completely destitute and unable to provide for himself. He has become destitute and he needs to be redeemed back into the kinship circle. He can't do anything to save himself. Remember, he's with the pigs. He goes, man, the slaves in my house, the servants in my house live better than I do. I'll go back, not as a son, because I know that I've broken all faith with my dad, but as a, but as a servant, and I'll just beg him if I could just work for food. I need to be redeemed. And so he comes, and we know what the good father did, don't we? He sees him afar off. He runs to him, and he redeems him back into the family. He put the ring back on his finger. He puts the robe back on his shoulders. He kisses him, and he says, You're, my son was dead, and now he is alive, and he redeems him. The patriarch takes him and redeems him and brings him back into the family. And this is a picture of someone who has, who has become destitute by their own choices, but the goodness of the father, he redeems him in spite of it and brings him back. The patriarch brings him back under, under his household, into his house, and restores him. He redeems him. This is what redemption is. See, that word redemption in our cultural lens, we don't use that very often. In fact, I would say that the way that we use the word redemption most often is actually when we go and we redeem our cans, right? Cans for Cuba. And we, because we, we go and we redeem our cans and we get our little slip and go into Safeway and we're like, here you go. And they're like, here's 12 bucks. And we're like, okay, I, re I redeemed. Well, that's not really redeemed. That's more like recycling because you gave them that 10 cents in the first place and they just held it in proxy until you brought the cans back. So that's, that's not redemption. <laughs> that's recycling. And we don't really have a lot of words that we use here for this. And by the way, most of us, we live in a pretty fantastic time where we don't really get destitute very often because thanks be to God, we do live in a time where God's kingdom has increased and we have a lot of opportunities. So the idea of seeing ourselves as destitute as we are is, is somewhat hard to see actually um, in regard to that most of our physical needs are met, but that we are, but we all started out spiritually, absolutely destitute. Are you with me? So that's one story, the prodigal who rejected his father and became destitute of his own choices, but his father redeemed him, the patriarch redeemed him back into the bet of, brought him back into the kinship circle, into his home. The next story I want to share with you is Ruth and Boaz. You guys are familiar with this, but I, I want to just take a minute to tell it to you. Another story of redemption, of being redeemed. Ruth married Naomi's son. Naomi had a lovely husband. She was from the tribe or the nation of Moab. Ruth, uh, no, I'm sorry. Let me just stop for a minute. That is not true. Naomi was from Israel, but she lived in another place away from Israel. And Ruth was from the tribe or the nation of Moab. And she married one of Naomi's two sons. Naomi had two sons. One was named Orpah. And uh, Orpah is the namesake of Oprah. There was a misspelling of Orpah, and that's how Oprah got her name. That is a true factoid for you. It has nothing to do with this message, but you, you, you're welcome. 
No one's writing that down. There's a little spot in the devotional. I'm kidding. So she has a, a husband and she has two sons, which by the standards of that day is a very successful life. Naomi has a very successful life. And then through the, the way that life circumstances happen, Naomi's husband dies. But then not only does her husband die, both of her sons die, leaving Naomi with nothing. So Naomi's only option is to actually go back to Israel and hope that she can find solace somewhere in Israel, that, that, that she would find a kinsman redeemer to bring her back in the household because her husband has died. She has no protection. She has no identity. She has no provision. So she has to go back. But she says to her daughter-in-laws, listen, you guys need to go and do the same thing. Go back to your families and see if you can find provision. And Orpah says, I love you, and she hugs her, and she kisses her, and she goes back to her tribe. But Ruth says no, and you guys know this story. She says, no, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God, and where you go, I will go. And so Ruth follows her, Ruth being a Moabitess from the tribe of Moab, goes back with her to Israel. And as Ruth is there, she begins to take care of her mother-in-law, much like a son would do to take care of his mother, but there's no man involved. And so she begins to go and she's harvesting the edges of the fields and she's going out and doing everything she can to care for her mother-in-law. And the, and the people of the town, they take notice and specifically a, a handsome fellow by the name of Boaz notices lovely Ruth as she's caring for her mother-in-law. And, and so he actually has his servants leave a little extra something, something, because he knows Ruth's coming and he's like, I wanna make sure she's able to bring something home to mama. And so Ruth, or Naomi notices that Ruth's bringing home a pretty good haul. And she says, what's going on? Where have you been harvesting? She says, I'm in the field of Boaz. Naomi says, that's actually really good news because Boaz is a relative of mine in my family. He's within my family. And so he's in line as a kinsman redeemer. So you should go and ask him if he would be willing to redeem you, to marry you. And so she goes to him, and she, she through, through some interesting, uh, culturally relevant ways, asks him basically, will you redeem me? Will you marry me? And he says, yes, but there's someone in line ahead of me that we have to ask if he would be willing to redeem you because he's actually first in line to redeem you. I can't imagine how nervous he must have been because he was already obviously in love with this woman to be like, man, if, I don't know what his name is. Let's call him Shib Shab. Says, yes, I'm going to be so upset. But luckily, when she goes to Shibshab, yes, that was his real name, then he says, I cannot redeem her. And the reason why that he could not redeem her, he says this, is he says, because I have my own estate that I'm concerned with. Because here's the thing. When the kinsman redeemer redeemed a widow and, first of all, gave the first son to be the name of your dead husband, he also took on all of the financial responsibilities of not only your future, but also your past. Any outstanding debts that you had, any disrepair in your properties, anything that's going on, it was of great cost to the Kimsman Redeemer to redeem you. He had to actually pay all your debts. He had to fix everything up in the house of your dead husband. So it wasn't a small thing to ask. It was actually at great cost to the Kinsman Redeemer. And so this guy, Shibshab, he wasn't, he wasn't down with it. He's a straight-up shibshab about it. And so he said, I'm going to pass. And so then Boaz was like, oh, thank God. 
And so he redeems her and he marries her. And the people in the town say of Ruth, or say to Naomi of Ruth, she is better for you than 10 sons. And what were they saying? She has, because see, what you have to understand is that Naomi was also redeemed when Ruth was brought into Boaz's house. Naomi now was cared for by Boaz as well as though it was his own mother-in-law, which she became. Do you see that? And so here's this situation where life's circumstances have made Naomi and Ruth absolutely destitute, and they could not save themselves, but the kinsman redeemer came in and redeemed them out of the circumstances that life had brought to them. That's what redemption is. The next story is Abraham and Lot. So Abraham, as you know, Father Abraham, that's what I'm talking about. Yes, Abraham and Lot. Lot was, uh, was Abraham's nephew. And, and uh, in fact, Lot's father had passed, and, a- and Lot came in under Abraham's patriarchy. He came into his bet av. He came into his household. He was home with Lot, and they began to grow and build. And at one point, an enemy came in and stole Lot, everything that he owned, all of his servants, all of his livestock, everything, took everything and went away to a, diff- to a different nation. A tribe had come in and stole everything. And when Abraham hears about it, he thinks, man, that sounds super fun. I'm going to go pick a fight with these people because that sounds amazing. No, no. He went, rallied some other leaders, and went in and defeated that enemy and brought Lot back because Lot belonged under his patriarchy. He was responsible for Lot as a part of his household. So he had to go and redeem him at cost to himself, risking his own life, risking his own finances, risking all of these things, not just because he liked Lot, because I think he did, but because he was actually responsible to do that. That was required of him as the patriarch over that household. And Lot was part of his household. So he went, and though Lot had been taken and made destitute by an enemy, he could not save himself, but he was redeemed by the patriarch Abraham and brought home into his bet ab. You see that? That's what redemption is. When an enemy steals everything from you and you're a destitute, the redeemer comes and brings you back. And the last story I want to share with you is the story of Hosea and Gomer. Gomer is a woman whose name has been besmirched beyond all other names of women. (laughs) It's funny to me. You just don't see a lot of people naming Gomers. I just feel like that that name, we figured it out. It's because of Gomer Pyle is, I think, where the name really went sideways. But Gomer was... Uh, was actually in this story, Hosea and Gomer, is the story of Hosea, who's a prophet of God. And God is dealing with Israel, and Israel has been stepping out on God and worshiping other gods and, and committing all kinds of sexual sins and just turning completely away from the Lord. And the Lord is speaking with Hosea, and he tells Hosea, listen, Israel has stepped away from me, and she's playing the harlot, but I am not willing to let her go because I love Israel and I'm going to marry her even though she's gone and sold herself to these other idols and into all this sinful brokenness. So what I want you to do, Hosea, is I want you to go down to the local brothel 
and I want you to marry a prostitute and bring her home and care for her because that's what I'm going to do for Israel. That is my favorite response preaching ever. So I love you. I'm buying you a coffee. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So he goes down. <laughs> so good. So good. So he goes down and he, and he takes Gomer. Now, I have borrowed, and by the way, if you want to read a fantastic book about our story and how to read it well, I recommend to you The Epic of Eden by Sandra Richter. I'm borrowing very heavily from her writing right now. One of the things that she said in regard to this story was she said, I've never talked to a 10-year-old little girl that said, when I grow up, I want to be a prostitute. And you've never, you never have either. I've never met a woman that said, gosh, you know what would be my life's dream is to sell my body for money. That's not the dream of any woman's heart. So the circumstances of life and the brokenness of this system that this woman lived in has forced her to the place where she, li she, she works in a brothel. So she cannot redeem herself. Whatever the circumstances are, this woman is a prostitute. So in this broken system, she cannot save herself from that. And she's living in a society where there's not like an upward mobility plan for prostitutes. Like, well, I'm going to start out as a prostitute, but then I'm going to like graduate to like a real high-class call girl and then probably find a husband. And then we'll go to church. No, this, 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 this woman is trapped and she, she is destitute because of circumstances of life, because of the brokenness and sinfulness of man. And she lives in this world that she cannot redeem herself. And Hosea comes and he says, God's chosen you and I choose you. Come home with me. I'm going to make you my wife. And then she has a son. And then she has a daughter and then she has another son. But then, and I think we can infer that because of the brokenness that was in her, having been abused and hurt, how many of you guys know that sometimes when we go through a lot of trauma, we might be out of the circumstances we came from, but the circumstances are still living inside of us. And so she doesn't, she doesn't stay with that redemption that she had been received, that she had received, and she actually returns back to her life of harlotry. And it goes so bad that now, not only so before she was actually had gainful employment, now she's actually being sold as a slave. So it's not even a paying gig anymore. And God says to Hosea, go back and redeem her. So the first time it was not her choice. The second time it was her choice, and it's gone even worse. And now she's enslaved, and she's being sold on the, on the slavery um, uh, market. She's auctioned off, and he buys her back. She's powerless to save herself, and Hosea redeems her. And he brings her home, and God's word to... Uh, Israel during this story, they're just beautiful because God's word is mirroring what Hosea is doing, and Hosea is doing what God is mirroring for Israel, and you can hear this for yourself. Listen to it, first person. I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord, and in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. Can you imagine? 
she's, she's gone back to this thing. And can you imagine being in that place? You know, I, like I, I was saved, I was redeemed, I was brought back, and then I chose to go back to the thing that I knew because I couldn't see myself any differently than what I had come from, and I went back to it. Of course, I blew my chance. He's never coming again. And then you look, and you look over, and there's the one that you left. And he's walking towards you. What is going to happen? And then he says, how much for this one? Because I will betroth you to me forever. That's redemption. You see, he wants you. He wants me. But many of us grapple with this idea of redemption. We grapple with the idea that God actually wants us. It's hard for us to think about. In fact, most of us are used to the idea of earning it, that there's something we can do to get there as though we could get to him. But what we need to understand is that it is Christ who redeems us and we are destitute and we cannot redeem ourselves. The patriarch is our father and Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. He has sent the kinsman redeemer and Jesus comes and says, I choose you. And then he gives his life. In fact, it says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the, of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our faith and hope is not in pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not by a self-help program. It's not by self-actualization. It's not by you becoming the best version of you. You, can't, you are the best version of you. You and I, our, the net gain of our efforts apart from his redemption is that we will perish and we cannot redeem ourselves. It is only through Jesus Christ, the kinsman redeemer, that we can be brought back to our father and be in his home, his bet ab forever. So this morning in closing, what I, what I want to do is I just want to invite you to close your eyes. And I, I want us to think about as we prepare, I don't want us to rush out of here, but as we prepare so many of us still have this idea. It's very hard for us. We'll close our eyes in just a minute. It's very hard for us to actually receive the redemption because many of us, I think, are a lot like Gomer and we really have believed for a long time that we're defective. Not that we've been stolen. Not that we've been ground up in the gears of this life. Yes, we have all sinned on purpose and liked it, but it didn't make us defective. It made us destitute. There's a difference here. But to the point that we feel that we're defective, then we actually reject being redeemed and we're scared to go home with him because we're afraid he'll get us there and he'll see us as we are and he'll be bummed out that he did it. 
and he'll reject us. Now, we know that's not true up here, but there's something that this gets real hard for us and we actually create distance. We're scared to go home with him. And so we say, I believe in you and someday you'll take me to heaven, but I don't, but I don't want to come into your household right now. And we stay back and we try to earn it to keep it. I think all of us identify with that on some level. So will you go ahead and close your eyes? And I want us to just take a moment. I want us to just do some business with the Lord. The Holy Spirit is here. The Spirit of Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer, is here. And maybe, maybe you identify with the prodigal son, that you, you liked his stuff, but you didn't want him. And you find yourself destitute by your own choices. Well, Jesus is here, and he wants to redeem you. And he wants to bring you back into his father's house. Let him. Let him redeem you. You can't do it yourself. But he can. Maybe you're like Ruth and Naomi. And life's circumstances have ground you up in the gears. It wasn't because of what you did, but you find yourself destitute. And you don't know how to get out of the stinking thinking. You don't know how to get out of the situation. Your kinsman redeemer is here. Jesus is here. And he wants to take you home into the Father's house right now. Just let him. Maybe you're like Lot and an enemy has pulled you in and you can't defend yourself and you can't save yourself and you need a rescuer. Jesus is here and he wants to take you back into his father's home. He wants to redeem you. Or maybe you're like Gomer. I think in my life, I relate the most with Gomer. That he's rescued me, and now I need him to do it again. Jesus is here. The kinsman redeemer, and he wants to redeem you. Let him. Whatever the scenario is that you identify, and for most of us, it's probably all of them are a combination. Jesus is here. He has redeemed you. Not for a future day, but he invites us now to come back into his home, into the Father's home. Just right now, just you and the Lord. Let him know what your answer is. Jesus, I want you to redeem me.
I will come home. I am home. Thank you. The elders and the prayer team are going to come forward, and if you'd like some more prayer or if we can bless you in any way, please come and let us agree with you. It's good to be home.